this yes. is hell. Behind every great fortune lies a great crime because this is hell, and I don't know what crime it was that was committed on my front stoop last night, Alex, but my front stoop is covered in blood. So that's something to wake up to when you're getting the newspaper in the morning. I have no idea what's going on out there, and I've kind of convinced myself there was just somebody eating the Indian treat known as pan, and they were spitting on the front porch of my place, but... Yeah, it looks like something horrible has happened on my front stoop. We are repeatedly told that science is objective. It has no goal but to forward our understanding of the physical world around and within us. We're reminded that the process of scientific inquiry is nothing more than asking a question, performing research, establishing a hypothesis, testing your hypothesis by conducting an experiment, making an observation, analyzing the results and drawing a conclusion, and finally presenting and possibly publishing your findings, which all seem perfectly analytical and absent of any bias whatsoever. Problem is, as with supposedly objective algorithms, science is conducted by humans, and humans have a variety of biases that are both known as well as others that go completely unrecognized by the person conducting the scientific inquiry. But what if our vaunted ideas of our objective science are not what they appear to be? What if science, as understood by the West, is far more insidious, if not outright nefarious? What if science has a major contributing role in colonialism and the dismissing of local knowledge as lacking expertise? And what if, as today's guest has argued in the past, pollution is colonialism, meaning science has in fact contributed to climate change. Such ideas would lead people to reconsider that sign on their front lawn that announces science is real. In a few minutes, we will talk about what science really is and has been when we speak with, yes, a scientist, Dr. Max Liboiron, who wrote the Nature article, Decolonizing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion. Dr. Liboiron is a leader in both developing and promoting anti-colonial research methods into a wide array of disciplines and spaces. As founder of CLEAR, C-L-E-A-R, that's the Civic Laboratory for Environmental Action Research, an interdisciplinary plastic pollution laboratory whose methods foreground humility and good land relations, Liboiron has influenced national policy on both plastics and indigenous research, invented technologies and protocols for community monitoring of plastics, and led the development of the interdisciplinary field of discard studies, which sounds fascinating. Find out more about CLEAR at civiclaboratory.nl. That's civiclaboratory.nl. Follow CLEAR on Twitter at CLEAR underscore lab underscore. Max's 2000 and uh, 2021 book, this book was published just back in March, uh, Pollution is Colonialism, bridges science and technology studies, indigenous studies, and discard studies, while providing a framework for understanding all research methods as practices that align with or against colonialism. Focusing on plastic pollution, the text models, and anti-colonial scientific practice associated with the Métis concepts of land, ethics, and relations, and demonstrates that anti-colonial science is not only possible, but it is currently being practiced. One reviewer for the book wrote that the text is at the leading edge of a significant turn in science and technology studies towards thinking with settler colonialism as a structure and terrain and contributes significantly as well as to 
thinking about ethical principles related to lab science and studies of pollution and shorelines. There are exceedingly few texts of this kind that ask how might we consider relations with land, waters, and science and still practice good science. Max is an associate professor in geography and is formerly the associate vice president of indigenous research at Memorial University. Max is Métis Michif, woodman via Red River, who grew up in Lac La Biche, Treaty 6 territory in Canada. Learn more about Max at their website, maxliboiron.com. That's L-I-B-O-I-R-O-N. Follow Max on Twitter at Max Liboiron. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Tuesday, and producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Alex, how have you been? Anything new in your world? Do you have blood on your front stoop? Yeah, no. Maybe a fun game to play on our street would be uh, Pawn or Blood. <laughs> it would be. It, do they look a lot alike? Uh, I, you know, I've never seen huge splatters of blood all over sidewalk <laughs> like I have seen Pawn, so I'm not quite sure. But uh, Is it crimson? Is it red? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to get into Pawn, Chuck? No. I've, every person I've talked to said it's disgusting. I want to try it once. I want to put that pod in my mouth and suck on all of its weird herbal ingredients and then spit it out it's like a tobacco. leaf, I believe, isn't it? Or yes. betel nut? Yeah, betel nut. There's a sign over on a storefront along here that says, please do not spit pan on ground. Please spit it in your pocket. Oh. <laughs> Which sounds disgusting. My bronchitis is lingering and it's really annoying and not just because of the pain in my throat and chest. It's annoying because my doctor suggested I consider any and all recent changes in my home that may be causing the bronchitis. I mean, sure, there's my first floor neighbor's black mold in her bathroom, but I live all the way up on the third floor, so the likelihood that's causing any irritation is not that great, or at least I hope. And I do smoke, but I've stopped, which sucks, but the pain still has not gone away. I've been considering any new fragrances in my home, as so many products today come with disgusting artificial odors, any number of which may be irritating my throat. Then I considered... The vitamins I take, but not taking vitamins makes me vulnerable to catching things like the common cold, which I have now had over the past couple of weeks. Then there are the pills I take to help me sleep, like melatonin and antihistamines. So I stopped taking those, and now I cannot sleep. It's just a matter of weeks. In just a matter of weeks, I went from a chronic problem of exhaustion to not being able to act on that exhaustion by sleeping. So for me personally, this is hell. But more importantly than my attempts at trying to figure out what's causing my bronchitis leading to my inability to sleep, Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021? So I'm having a little bit of difficulty coming up with my answer to this week's question from hell. I may have figured it out on the way over here, Alex, but as the writer of the question from hell every week, is there any help or advice you can give me or listening audience insight into this week's question that may help them with their response? No, because it's also going to be, what was your lowest high point? (laughs) (laughs) I think that might be easier. That might be easier. See, thank you for challenging. It probably evens out in the wash. It does. The person with your favorite answer to this week's question from Al wins your choice of whatever. This is how swag you want. This is how t-shirts, tote bags, a face covering, and the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. The trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check them all out 
right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you'll see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. We do not accept any commercial money. We do not accept any grant money. And we do not make enough profits to be a not-for-profit. So it's all on you. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth, during this week's moment, Jeff picks eggs over chicken. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our conversation with Max on science as colonialism. It's Tuesday, so we're reading your email sent to chuck at thisishell.com with your guest and topic suggestions and whatever else you want to tell us about the show. If we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we'll thank you on air during the interview for your suggestion. As we will be playing our 10 favorite shows or interviews from 2021 during the final two weeks of the year, which are the next two weeks of this year, while we take off time for the holidays, we are also asking what is or are your favorite interviews or shows that you heard on This Is Hell this year. Again, if we play your suggestion during our best of shows, we will thank you personally on air. Wally sent us his list of favorite shows this year on This Is Hell. Wally writes, hey, my top three tough choices in a banner year for hell are the real history of the alamo with chris tomlinson dynastic wealth with chuck collins and guns and black america with carol anderson sorry uh, then he says i've been uh, very busy with a whole bunch of things in my life and i hope you get better wally and then he signs off good effing times Thanks, Wally. Last week, listener Joel G. sent us his list of favorite shows of 2021. And while Wally's list had only three favorites, Joel's was 21 shows long. Unbelievably, only one of Joel's 21 favorite episodes made Wally's list, that being our interview with Chris Tomlinson on his book, Forget the Alamo, Alamo, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, which I must admit was one of my favorite episodes as well. As Wally has seconded that episode, it will likely be one of the shows we will be replaying over the winter break. By the way, as we will not be doing a live show a week from today on December 21st, happy solstice to everyone. And for those of you still recognizing the Roman holiday of Saturnalia, which begins Friday, December 17th and runs for a week, happy Saturnalia as well. Matt also sent us his favorite shows of 2021. Matt writes, Chuck and the crew, thanks to everyone for another year of This Is Hell on the Radio. My favorite shows of the year have been the ones with Martin Van Bylert on the Taliban, with Kevin Waite on Slavery's Westward Reach, and with Davarian L. Baldwin on Universities Swallowing Cities. Hope that everyone has a safe and peaceful holiday season. From hell, Matt. And get this. None of those three made Joel's list of his 21 favorite shows of 2021, which means despite us featuring only 10 shows, 10 interviews suggested by listeners as their favorites over the holidays, we already have 26 unique suggestions from only three listeners, and only one interview has been seconded, has been repeated. We'll have more of your feedback following our conversation with Max on colonialism and science coming up just that a discussion on the impact of science on colonialism and vice versa alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell which is what was your highest low point of 2021 what was your highest low point of 2021 and we'll be sharing more of your emails following our interview 
live from late capitalism where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing this is hell well if you want to get a scientist angry with you tell them science is colonialism i know i've done it and it does not go over well the very idea of the study of our physical world being grounded in settler colonialism and displacing indigenous populations while erasing indigenous knowledge would seem anathema to science but as today's guest convincingly argues whether scientists realize it or not science has played an outsized role in colonialism here to help us understand the connections between science and colonialism dr max libwaran wrote the nature article decolonizing geoscience requires more than equity and inclusion welcome to this is how max Thank you. You can learn more about Max at their website, Max Libwaran. That's L-I-B-O-I-R-O-N. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Libwaran. So the very first sentence of your article, I know, would get me in trouble if I mentioned it to some friends of mine. And your sentence is, science has long played an integral role in colonialism. That sentence can be very upsetting to those who have dedicated their lives to science. If science was integral to colonialism, to what extent can scientists find solace in at least believing science's role in colonialism as something that happened in the past, that today's science is not, at least to the same degree, contributing to colonialism. So most dominant knowledge systems like science uh, contribute to other dominant systems like capitalism and colonialism. Um, And that doesn't mean it's inherently bad, um, but it does mean it's aligned with certain ways of thinking about power. So historically, Uh, Western science, which means science that grew out of uh, ancient Greece and was influenced heavily by Christianity and Judaism and Islam about how to sort out your feelings and your thoughts and your spirit and your body, you know, goes through the enlightenment. That science was really important for figuring out how to take other people's land. Right. So how do you move into tropical areas or Arctic areas without dying as a, you know, as a white settler? How do you not get malaria? Uh, How do you cure malaria? How do you cultivate certain foods so that you can eat what you're used to eating in new lands? And then at the same time, this idea of bringing that type of knowledge system over and replacing local knowledge systems with Western science was seen as the hallmark of civilization. Um, so getting rid of what might be called superstition, was, which was just other forms of systematic knowledge um, so that Western science could prevail was like the winning, the winning of the land. Um, but ironically, at the same time, without local knowledge, uh, Western scientists and settlers would have died immediately uh, because they needed a lot of local knowledge to get churned through sort of colonial goals just to basically survive and then take over. That Christian impact on science is not something that is regularly recognized by scientists. The religious impact on science, because, you know, when we talk about indigenous knowledge, it's always framed within religious or spiritual nature of indigenous knowledge. So is science uh, Christian colonialism? And is it fair to consider that indigenous knowledge is influenced by spirituality while Western science is not? Well, I'd say Western science is very influenced by spirituality, including the disavowal of that. This idea that you can split off, um, you know, even something like your feelings from your thoughts or your body from your brain or your intents from your actions, like that's very Christian. 
um, right. Your, your soul leaves your body and goes somewhere else. Like that kind of splitting is very unique to, I'd say, Western cultures and Western science. It of course gets expressed in very different ways. You, know, you follow it down the line, but um, I mean, that's what objectivity is. Objectivity is like the, the soul body mind feeling split really. And other knowledge systems are like, well, that's kind of cheeky. And if you keep doing that, which you can't really do, you're going to be really, really biased. And you're going to, you're going to come down some roads that don't lead you to good places. And that is uh, what happens. Uh, we do end up with uh, quite sexist science or uh, science that doesn't take context into account or right. These sorts of things. So should objectivity be the horizon and not be something that you actually believe you attained? I would say most scientists, Western scientists already think that, <laughs> regardless of what they may or may not say in public. It's very normal to like drop your sample or, you know, something blows away or, you know, like these, everyone sort of knows that these pristine findings that come up the other end of an experiment or a study are like highly facilitated and held together with everything from duct tape to a million dollar grants, right? Depending on, you know, different costs of tape. Um, <laughs> but I think we all, all scientists, there's as much art as science and art. And so most of us, all of us that I've ever talked to follow our gut and get a feel for the machine and get a feel for the data. And, you know, that doesn't actually get separated out except for how we talk about science. Um, a lot of scientists these days going into environmental science, they do that because of their sense of what is good and right and true and needed, uh, you know, their heart. So, so when you do divide those things out, you get some hinky stuff because it's never really divided. How aware do you think the scientific community, the Western scientific community is of their historic contribution to colonialism? Uh, I think it's really uneven, but increasing. So, um, I think say like middle-aged and younger scientists and then some older folks too are starting to really notice that there aren't a lot of black or indigenous or folks of color in science or trans folks or queer folks or women like there's and it's not because science is for white people it's because something's happening to those folks that that isn't outside of science uh it's integral to the not just the profession but the culture of science and how science is done and where it is done and where it is not done and right and so people are becoming aware of that and um this is why nature invited me to to write this piece to talk about this problem in terms of colonialism um that you know say if you're an indigenous person and you go and do your science degree you will be repeatedly t told that local knowledge has no bearing, that elders aren't scientists, that, you know, the, the ethics first over content is bull, like just constant, constant wrongness from an, from an indigenous community perspective um, is not only normal, but right. And the only right. And so, yeah, of course you, you leave and go somewhere where, where those ways of thinking are more accepted. Uh, so, yeah. You write that since the European Enlightenment research on tropical and Arctic climates, diseases like malaria, and on soils and the cultivation of plants, among other topics, was required to prepare new, quote-unquote, new lands for settlers and settlers for those lands. How focused was science on making certain settlers would be safe when they colonize and occupy foreign lands? Was colonialism the driving force of scientific inquiry, or was scientific inquiry the driving force behind colonialism? I think they were best friends. Uh, so they co-constituted. So it's sort of like, so, so public medicine used to be called tropical medicine. It used to be about not dying of malaria, right? Like entire fields um, and, and approaches are dedicated to 
like making sure that settlers don't die <laughs> um, when they go to these nose places because they don't know what they're up to. So uh, even if you can think of like the in, entire like uh, areas of science about about colonizing Mars or, you know, all these sorts of stuff, you know, that's just a extrapolation of what's already happened on Earth. A ton of botany is all about taking and and patenting and learning all about seeds so you can extract the value from from you know these places in india and, and north america and south america so yeah i mean it's um science was needed to do that and um science loved doing that um and yeah now they're best now they're best friends and we forget about some of these legacies uh some of these really common uh, inventions in science, like um, the acre or these sorts of stuff was about privatizing land and that gets into measurements and there's, yeah, it's, it's really tightly interwoven. And so the question isn't like, oh, is science a big jerk? Uh, it's like, given this legacy, what do we do? You can't, uh, you're not going to unring these bells, but you can recognize that these bells are ringing and try and play a different tune. So what would that look like? This is, this is our legacy as scientists pretending it doesn't exist won't help. Uh, so given that, what do we, what do we get up to? You point out that at the same time, science was considered a gift that imperial powers brought to colonies, part of what was seen as a civilizing mission. The replacement of local forms of knowledge with Western science was considered a mark of success. Science replaced local forms of knowledge. How unscientific were local forms of knowledge? Well, I mean, I think in some cases that's a case of semantics, but if you think about small s science as systematic inquiry that holds when the when it gets tested in the world over and over again, then like children are scientists. They learn about the world, they test things. They're like, oh, that's how gravity works. Okay. And I mean, that's how they learn how to walk. They're, they're systematically testing things, learning the rules, and then it holds up in the world. Um, so um, the miasma theory of the of disease where you, uh, various folks, including Europeans, thought that um, disease came from bad smells. That is the longest scientific uh, theory of pollution in the history of, of, of disease and pollution uh, because it held up really well. When you drained swamps and the smell went away, yeah, people were healthier, mosquitoes, et cetera. When, when you didn't let things ferment and go rotten and then drink them, you didn't get sick, right? So, so anytime that where there's systematic knowledge acquisition that holds up in the world, um, that's that's systematic inquiry. That's science. That's a science. Because as I was pointing out earlier, scientific inquiry is the process of asking a question, performing research, establishing a, a hypothesis, testing your hypothesis by conducting an experiment, making an observation, analyzing the results and drawing a conclusion, and finally presenting those findings. How much does that differ from the way local indigenous knowledge was and is known, learned, or understood? Um, I mean, a lot of the techniques and stuff would be different, but the, I would say the overall flavor isn't horrifically different. Uh, otherwise you wouldn't be able to grow things on time or hunt things, you know, it's yeah. So absolutely. Um, might not be broken down into those steps. Uh, what counts as authority, what counts as bias, what counts as holding up in the world. Uh, those would be different, but the, the same notes would be wrong. Yeah. So how has science to any degree, stopped contributing to colonialism or like colonialism is it in a far different form far more subtle than more brutal and obvious incarnations of colonialism where people were even being proud and boasting of their colonial power so 
That's a good and difficult question. So the thing about dominant systems, when a system is dominant, they become very unremarkable. They get hard to point to. So it's sort of like racism. So if someone calls someone else the N-word, everyone can point to that and being like, yep, that's bad. We can see that. We can point to it. We can all agree on a spectrum that that was racism. But it's much harder to point to microaggressions and the magical way that Black people just aren't in science and technology fields and like because there aren't events, but there's definitely racism there. So that so science and colonialism have the same relationship. Sometimes, yeah, scientists going into Indigenous communities and being like, you're dumb and superstitious and you should do this and Western science is here to save you. That still happens and that is very overtly colonial. But things the thing about dominant systems is it starts to dictate what is common sense and normal and natural and unexceptional. So the idea that um, you can just pick up a rock as a geologist on a rock, on a walk and take it back with you uh, to show your class seems like inherently good and kind and pedagogical and good for teaching. But if that was indigenous land, that's actually theft. And that probably breaks treaty relations and possibly land claim uh, sort of agreements that's colonialism. This idea that uh, you should include uh, more indigenous quote unquote voices in your in your teaching as the opposite of colonialism, and this is the point of the piece, is actually still colonial. As colonialism means uh, non-indigenous access to indigenous life and land uh, and culture and thought for the enrichment and use and benefit of non-indigenous folks, then using indigenous ideas in your classroom to enrich the white folks that's still colonialism. That's still how local knowledge is treated uh, in a colonial relationship. So the, the point of the article is really breaking down, like don't conflate different types of good. So like anti-racism is good. Um, decolonization is good. Inclusion is good. And taking your shoes off at the front door is good. But when you start saying taking your shoes off at the front door is the same as decolonization, now we have a problem because, you know, land relations haven't changed if you take your shoes off at the front door. So, so including more indigenous people into STEM where like it is quite crappy for us very often um, because of these forms of colonialism and racism that are still going on. Um, diversifying who shows up to a panel, even though they maybe are still saying local knowledge is stupid and superstitious and isn't systematic or worthy, right? It doesn't matter what color those folks are. That's still colonialism. So, so just really differentiating between our goods and our bads so that we can align them a little bit better uh, is, is part of the points here. And I want to get back to that point of inclusion is not the opposite of colonialism in a little bit, but I wanted to uh, uh, mention uh, what you point out about dominant systems. And you say that dominant systems stay dominant in part because they dictate what counts as common sense, as you were just saying. So how difficult is it to challenge what is considered normal and natural? Is that the biggest challenge when it comes to totally. decolonializing science? Totally. So I run a lab where these, these, these are some of the basics of how we organize our science, right? So we don't assume access to indigenous land for non-indigenous folks. Uh, and I had this one student who was in my lab for maybe four years and we study plastic pollution. That's one of the main things we study. And she was like, oh, there's been a big bird die off in this area. Can I go get the birds so we can open them up and look for plastics. And I was like, no, you're going to need permission from the indigenous group to do that. She's like, but they're dead. I'm like still on indigenous land. And she's been working with me for seven years, but something just clicked in her head. They're like, well, they're worthless. They're not, they're not useful to the indigenous group. They're not going to be eaten. Therefore 
I get unfettered access. And I was like, no, under no conditions do you get unfettered access. So it's, it's super hard. I catch myself doing colonial things all the time, um, reproducing it because it's, it's how I was trained. Um, so for, for instance, we, one of the ways you can analyze plastics um, in something like a shellfish, you can't really open up a shellfish's belly and look for very small plastics with your eyeballs and a tweezer. The scientific method for doing that is dissolving that poor guy in acid or ba a base that act basically dissolving his little body and um, all the plastics float to the top. Okay. But, but now, first of all, it's kind of rude to the, to the muscle, not a great land relation, but second of all, then you've got this toxic sludge and you're going to need access to indigenous land to put that toxic sludge to quote unquote, take care of it, to assimilate it, to store it, to whatever. Um, that's a colonial land relation. Making knowledge in a way that harms indigenous land for the quote unquote, greater good is a colonial land relation. And we used that method in my lab for a year before I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, where are those jars going? Oh, dang. Right. And, and then we had to change our protocol. So it's, it's very, very tricky. Um, yeah. So what is that new protocol? How can you still study the impact of plastics on sea life without going through this process that you said make this acid sludge that's going to be dumped somewhere on indigenous land? Well, we don't study mussels. <laughs> so what do you study? So, uh, everything else. <laughs> it's not like there's a shortage of things that eat plastic. It has not negatively impacted our uh, research program in any way, shape or form. So there, there's a part of the article that says sometimes the anti-colonial move is to stop and to not, and not assume, like have this entitled access, this, this idea that we must study muscles or else something horrible happens. And to do that, we must have this sort of colonial relationship with land. Like, no, actually we can study plastic pollution just fine without making this toxic sludge. And we know muscles eat plastics. Does it matter whether they eat 1 million or 2 million? No, it does not. Um, and we know that. So, so we're good. We don't have to also like harm, harm the land in order to get that exact number. Um, instead, we can study char or, you know, any of the number of other animals that, that our lab studies. So in your opinion, why are we so seemingly quick to accept what the dominant and powerful say is normal and natural? Why are we apparently unwilling to disagree with what the dominant powers insist is normal and, nat and natural? Is it our fault? Is it our complicity in the system? Or is it more about inequality or power? Oh, it's definitely about power. So like you, it's not an individual choice, whether or not you sub, you're part of a dominant system or not. Right. So, um, things that don't occur to you can't occur to you just because you want them to occur to you. Right. So if there's a dominant system that says, these are things that make sense. And these are things that don't make sense to the point we can't even think of them, you can't suddenly start thinking of them. Um, this is part of why dominant systems really need a lot of different um, groups of people who are on the peripheries of dominant systems to be like, hey, I can see different things. Let's collaborate on this on this view because like your shades are way too dark and you're never going to, you know. So um, it has to be collective. It is not an individual problem. Um, but I think we all have um, individual accountability to that system. Like if someone points out, oh, by the way, you have subscribed to the dominant system and it's causing harm and here's what it's looked like. The knee jerk reaction can't be like, screw you, <laughs> but like, oh, let me think about that. Maybe the answer is still screw you at the end of the day, but um, you can't think of things you haven't thought of without other people and without other collectives. 
You write the current. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. It makes a lot of okay. sense. And I'm really enjoying our conversation. I really am. This is fantastic. You write the current mechanisms of colonialism might look different, but non-Indigenous entitlement to Indigenous land, life, and knowledge still characterizes everyday relations in science. Can that, yeah. it, well, is it one or the other? Must we uh, choose between colonial science and Indigenous knowledge? Can they no, work? No. Uh, can, so can they work collaboratively? Uh, totally. Uh, first of all, friend, you can't have indigenous knowledge <laughs> unless you're indigenous. Uh, it comes out of the cosmologies, communities, and like, it's like, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to take black knowledge today. Well, that's just cheeky. I'm not black, by the way. That's just cheeky and wrong. And like, just revisits the problem with like a new dress on. Let's not do that. So I often talk about anti-colonial science as opposed to decolonial science. And I can talk about that more in a minute, but anti-colonial science just means like science that ain't colonial. Like how about if you just don't assume entitlement to indigenous land and life as part of your research. So doing things like, Oh, I'm not going to just walk onto that land and take stuff. That's the anti-colonial research design move or, um, you know, if, if you talk to Indigenous folks to try and understand something, pay them as consultants the way you do everyone else as to be like, oh, that's just culture. I'll just take that. It's not worth anything. Um, or, you know, like there are different moves you can make that don't reproduce this entitlement. And what's really important to understand is just because you're not a jerk, that, that's not the anti-colonial move. So the example I use all the time is um, beach cleanup. So I work in the plastic world and cleaning up shorelines for plastics is very, very common and environmental and good for plastic pollution, but it can still be colonial if you just access that beach and do what you want for it because you want it to be healthy on your terms. So it can be environmental and colonial at the same time, right? These are one form of good isn't good for everybody and everything. You could, some forms of good can still be colonialism. The, the other big example is like hydroelectric dams to deal with hydro, uh, climate change. There's a hydroelectric dam in my province of Newfoundland and Labrador that is putting methylmercury into the water because that's what dams do. And it is poisoning the food chains of mostly Inuit folks who rely on that water for a huge portion of their food. Well, that's a pretty, and PS, they said no <laughs> at the beginning of this. Some of them, there's a group, there's different groups, but some of the groups said no. So this like, environmental project also very colonial so what is the difference between anti-colonial and decolonial science so uh i rely a lot on the work of these two very smart people called eve tuck and wayne yang uh, in the north american context they say decolonization if, if colonization is the access to indigenous land then decolonization is land back straight up full stop period uh, anti-colonialism means not reproducing colonialism, while decolonization means land back. And that's the only thing it means. There are, of course, different um, colonialisms in different parts of the world who will have different decolonizations and different meanings, right? But land back is a huge and central part of that. So, you know, including Indigenous authors in your syllabus and teaching them uh, or reading more books by Indigenous folks is not decolonization. It is not land back. Um, but you know, if you sort of leverage it and, and stop reproducing the sort of entitlement problem, then it might be anti-colonial. That's why I differentiate, because they're different goods and they address different bads. 
So this reminds me of a conversation we had last week about a wildlife refuge that they're trying to be imposed in an area here in Illinois, 60 miles south of us in Kankakee County, where it is an area of historic black farming dating back to 1861. And the Nature Conservancy is working with the federal government to bring this natural, uh, this uh, wildlife refuge to the area, yet everybody in the area, nobody wants it because they still want to use this land possibly for the farming that they've been using it for for the last 160 years. And in that mm-hmm. conversation, uh, Kank- uh, Kankakee County commissioners, they all voted against the wildlife refuge. Then they put it to a popular vote and a referendum. And then that was overwhelmingly passed, uh, you know, to oppose the wildlife refuge. And still the wildlife refuge is moving forward. So to in that mm-hmm. conversation, the problem was a lack of democracy. How much is there a lack of democracy when it comes to indigenous beliefs in science and how they react to more federal and government policies regarding land? Well, as you may know, the main problem with democracy as it's usually practiced is that it's a majority vote and indigenous folks account for, you know, two to 5% of a population in a given place. So even if all the indigenous folks vote a certain way, we're still going to get overruled and colonial, you know, so, um, uh, there's a difference between stakeholders and rights holders. Stakeholders have a stake in things. They have interests. They have livelihoods. Rights holders have rights. And so under UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, Indigenous po- folks have rights, while wildlife conservationists or farmers or municipalities have stakes. And that's a way to help address the sort of uh, uneven numbers and power dynamics that um, traditional democracy might introduce. Uh, because I mean, Canada is a democracy and that hasn't gone well for us. Uh, and it's not even a horrible democracy, um, like certain other countries in and around Chicago. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, um, I don't think democracy is the best. So sovereignty is, is the term that most indigenous folks would use the right for self-determination of indigenous nations, uh, and groups to, um, have the relationships with the land and life that, that we're supposed to have and that we've had since time immemorial. And the settler state um, can't be dictating the terms of that because then it's not sovereign. Uh, yeah. So sovereignty over democracy, that would be the bumper sticker. Right. And that sounds like a good one. I like that. Sovereignty over democracy. This is hell. That's a good tagline. We are speaking with Dr. Max Libuaran, who wrote the Nature article decolonizing geoscience requires more than equity and inclusion. Science, of course, would argue that Western way of knowing and doing are superior. Is there any evidence that science is not superior to indigenous local knowledge? Uh, Climate change, deforestation, ocean acidification, uh, acid rain, Plastic pollution. I mean, you want me to keep forest fires, landslide? You want me to keep going? There's indigenous sciences, uh, if you can call it that. Not all indigenous people want to call it science because science got this baggage. Um, but systematic indigenous ways of knowing and doing um, are very, usually, very, there's lots of different indigenous. Using indigenous as like a catch all is kind of rude because there are a gazillion different indigenous groups. But one of the things a lot of us have in common is, is knowledge systems and ways of doing that are very tied to balance and generosity and uh, not doing massive, large-scale interventions that would change those balances. Uh, and so our science takes scale into account, or what you might want to call science, takes scale into atta- account, takes relationships into account, takes obligations to land into account. 
and your average Western science doesn't do that. So yeah, there's, there's a number of examples um, where thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years of indigenous science had far better outcomes than a hundred years of Western science in the same places. So I've spoken with, I, I would, it's kind of rude for me to characterize these people like this, but I've spoken with very liberal scientists and science journalists who argue that indigenous people, you know, they simply don't know what they're doing and it's no fault of their own. This is always <laughs> the step back. It's no fault of their own. What knowledge uh, they have has been changed by colonialism and capitalism and has been interrupted so much by occupation that it simply no longer exists or exists in the same way it did in the past. That colonialism had a huge adverse effect on indigenous oral history. What impact has co colonialism and science had on local knowledge? How much damage has colonialism done to that knowledge? Oh, I've done a lot of damage. Um, so uh, I saw one guy, Kyle White, who's Potawatomi, explain it like, so if, if knowledge is a set of interlocking rings, you know, that form a giant ring, I'd, I'd have to draw it and that will be very hard on radio. But you know, if it's, if it's this big ring of rings and colonialism comes in with a giant hammer and at first it kills your knowledge holders and then it kills your governor, you know, your governing you know, bodies and then it kills you know, women who are major knowledge holders and then it brings in residential schools to just de-enculture de everyone, you're gonna be missing some rings. <laughs> Like that is the point of genocide and, and colonialism is a genocidal project. And yeah, it had effects. It was, it was unevenly successful in different ways. Um, I live in a place in Newfoundland where the traditional, the local folks were the Beotuk. I don't even know how to say Beotuk because the genocide was so complete that there are no knowledge holders left of any kind. Right. There might be little tweaky tweaks of DNA here and there, but but there there's no basic practicing culture or knowledge or anything. So, yeah, of course, it's damaged. Does that mean it doesn't work? No, you can drive on a flat tire and you can get very far and you can learn how to inflate that tire. There's also this this idea that so there are things, you know, and there are ways, you know, and a lot of the ways we know are still intact and you can fill back in that content with your ways of knowing. Uh, so when elders teach us about how to go onto the land and observe and listen, scientific methods, maybe you call them, maybe you wouldn't, regardless, they're methodologies of, of knowledge. Um, the way that your, your body um, is attuned to, to the land as, as a way to, to listen and learn and think, you can get your content back. Um, a lot of it, and you can adapt it. Uh, I mean, indigenous knowledges were never static, right? So they can adapt to when it's also covered in concrete and when the ocean is also quite acidic and when climate is swinging, right? We, our knowledge can handle all of that, uh, but it is not defunct. Uh, it's just been beaten to a pulp, uh, but you can do a lot with pulp. And there's another uh, impact, another input on this uh, situation with when it comes to uh, people viewing indigenous farming as not being in some way adequate. I've been told by a science journalist that in interviews they've had with white farmers on indigenous farming that the white farmers believe indigenous people, again, simply don't know what they're doing because they're not replicating colonial, if you will, farming processes. However, right, when, right. When, when speaking with indigenous people on our show, we've heard about the uh, inability for indigenous to, say, borrow against their land or have access yes. to capital for newer agricultural technologies. What yes. is the impact of poverty on indigenous knowledge of lack of access to capital and credit on indigenous farming? Oh, well, that's a very specialized question. Um, but I do know that finance and financing and that sort of stuff is a, is a primary tool of colonialism. And that's not my area of expertise. 
Shiri Pasternak. There's a bunch of people where that is that is how they talk about uh, a primary technology of colonialism being different forms of finance. Um, but that's sort of like <laughs> taking someone's water, turning off all the taps, and then blaming them for being thirsty, right? Um, or like finding very inventive and weird ways to get their water. Uh, it's just it's just cheeky. Um, yeah. You write that academic scientists sometimes advocate for indigenous participation in science through citizen science. This is seen as <laughs> development and success. Is citizen science a way of imposing colonial science and setting aside indigenous knowledge? Is citizen science another form of colonialism? Often. So full disclosure, I use citizen science in my research quite a lot, uh, but not with indigenous groups. Uh, so citizen science, there's a whole, there's a bunch of different kinds, but usually citizen science means that everyday non-scientists are your data bitches. They go out and they'll gather the data for you and give it to you and you do whatever you're going to do before. But instead of paying graduate students or consultants, you get it for free from a whole lot of different places. And sometimes when you're underpaid and your or your projects aren't funded, that is a good idea. But basically that folds people into Western science and its and its needs and its comportments. And uh, yeah, so there's a, a bunch of things that happen with science. First of all, it usually encourages non-Indigenous people to go into Indigenous land and get stuff in the name of science. The amount of, so when, as a, as a professional scientist, if I want to go get water from the Labrador Sea, I have to ask the Department of Fisheries and Oceans for a permit, and I have to ask the Nazi-Civic government. Citizen scientists are unaware of both of those permits and just go get it. So that's not great. So there's a sort of like, go forth and take stuff for science, hooray. And that there's a lot of land claim agreements that get Nooked because of citizen scientists thinking they're doing a good idea and the scientists behind it haven't talked about permitting, for instance. The other thing that happens is it's about folding more and different types of people into the dominant system. So training citizen scientists so they produce good quote unquote data, which means by Western standards. Um, so they fit into the boxes better and can be standardized better. That, that usually on purpose erases local knowledge. So for instance, a citizen science project in this province is like, go identify some birds for our bird count. And someone says, oh, I saw a bully bird. And they're like, yeah, I don't trust that you can properly identify a bully bird. You must describe the size and the color and like all these sort of chunks. And at the end of it, they're like, oh, that's not a bully bird, that's a little auk. And actually bully bird is the local term for a little auk, right? So it's, 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 these, it's these weird comportments that happen. The other thing that citizen science holds dear is that bringing more and different people into citizen science is a way to enrich them by teaching them about Western knowledge systems and that makes them better people. And that my friend is the colonial way. That is knowledge imperialism. You will be a better person if you think like me is rude and wrong and colonial. And that's, that's one of the quote unquote benefits of citizen science. It teaches people to be little scientists, never full scientists, we baby scientists that always fall short, which is exactly a colonial powers understood. Like, so when, when colonial powers went to India and made all of these little bureaucrats out of local folks, the little is very intentional there because they could never be proper colonizers. They would always be baby colonizers and they'd be baby scientists who could never quite be true real scientists, even though they were trained in the colonial way. I got ranty. I have a thing with citizen science. <laughs> That's very good. We had a great conversation last year about citizen science, so I really appreciate that. You mentioned Sherry Pasternak. Is that the Micmac attorney? Because I think we may have interviewed her in the past. 
No, she's a white lady who's a good ally. Okay. Uh, she's at the University of Toronto, I think, or York. You write, uh, we must be specific. Colonialism is about access to Indigenous land and the replacement of Indigenous ways of knowing and living. The opposite of colonialism is not inclusion, as you were pointing out earlier. Yesterday, when discussing Indigenous industrial schools, Martin Bilheimer, uh, author of Mother Chicago, Truant Dreams and Specters Over the Gilded Age, he explained how progressives in the late 19th and early 20th century viewed those schools as a site of inclusion by including Indigenous within the Western education system. Martin even quoted President Ronald Reagan lamenting that so much harm had been done to Indigenous culture and Indigenous peoples and his belief that it was unfortunate the settlers were not more inclusive when it came to Indigenous culture. You argue the opposite. Colonialism is not inclusion, or is is inclusion, sorry. But what does it reveal either about colonialism or its adherents who see inclusion as the opposite of colonialism? So one of the hallmarks of imperialism which is best friends with colonialism, is this idea of making mini-me's, mini-Europe's, mini-Europeans, mini-good, smart little scientists. Um, uh Uh-oh, I forgot the question. Can you reset the question? (laughs) Sorry. So uh, you argue argue that colonialism... uh, Inclusion. Yeah. Right. It came back. I'm sorry, my dog did a cute thing, and that was the end of the <laughs> That's what happens in most of my uh, conversations, which, but it's a cat. Le- legitimate, yeah. Le- I think it's legitimate, and I never want to fix that. <laughs> so um, this this sort of imperial idea of making little Europeans into subjecthood, like, like that's that's a inclusion model. It's an inclusion model of imperialism, bringing bringing the natives, the locals, the whatever you want to call it, into your dominant system and fashioning them into your into your ideas of success and your ideas of knowledge and, and training them up so that they can succeed on your terms. That is, I mean, that's genocide. That's replacing local college with the uh, culture, with the dominant culture and local ways of knowing with the dominant ways of knowing. And it is well-intentioned, but that is what the missionaries were up to. They were up to save people's souls and, and bring them into Christianity, which was also genocide. So, um, so it really, it really gets me drove, as they say here, when there's like these STEM programs that are about going to northern communities and and trying to get folks into the STEM pipeline, that takes them further from their traditional communities and their traditional teachers and their language and their ways of knowing and their land because that will somehow be more successful, um, and turning them into into little white engineers who just happen to be darker, and. And that's the sign of success. So that's still very alive, alive and well. Uh, and that's considered, yeah, an enrichment. Um, giving giving people white dominant Western culture is a form of enrichment. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's even even lots of white Western people don't like that culture. So it's it's I don't understand why that's still so dominant. People seem really unhappy, like on Twitter, with just the the status quo of Western society. So I don't understand why it's enrichment to bring more people into that. Yeah, I got to admit, I agree with you doubling down on it. I don't really get that either. You write being specific about what we mean by colonialism in science is essential if we aren't to mistake other positive actions for anti-colonialism. Inclusion, respect, you were mentioning these earlier, anti-racism, equity, finding common ground, environmentalism, and diversification are essential, but they do not usually address colonialism. What happens to inclusion, respect, anti-racism, equity, finding common ground, environmentalism, diversification, when colonialism is not considered as a contributing factor to each? Well, so that's that's like the shoreline cleanup thing where people have access to a shoreline and do an environmental cleanup. And they're like, hooray, we win, but they've reproduced colonialism. So um, what happens is that things get celebrated and the types of harm that those good things also do 
don't get acknowledged. Um, and that's how dominant systems reproduce themselves. So there are, for instance, tons of, of academic grants about decolonizing syllabus and pedagogy and the kitchen sink uh, getting funded and land relations have not budged an inch. And that is how dominant systems reproduce themselves. Lots and lots of movement um, in, in high rhetoric registers uh, without actually changing power dynamics. And that's very important to maintaining a status quo. Lots of movement that, that makes a circle. So that's what happens if you're not specific about what colonialism is and say like, oh, it's just not being mean to indigenous people, which is not the bar. I mean, sure, don't be mean to me, but also land back um, or be mean to me and land back. And then the first part won't matter. So it's um, or matter in the same way. So it's uh, those sort of specificities, I think, are really important if you actually want to change something. So I'm going to ask you a question that I I think I know what the response is, but I need to ask you anyway. You write, we need to investigate our own scientific practices. How do our disciplines, pedagogical norms and research methods benefit from access to indigenous lands, life and knowledge? Who has done the research on indigenous land and where are they from? What are the permission processes for field trips and research sites, including seemingly landless uh, data sets? Is what is needed by indigenous knowledge a scientific analysis of how science has contributed to colonialism? Yes, yes. So people's knee-jerk reaction to the type of chat we're having or that article we're talking about is to email me and be like, thank you so much. Give me more. I'm like, did you not hear what I just said? Stop taking stuff from me and asking stuff and feeling like you have access to indigenous life, land and knowledge and go do your homework, right? Go find out how geography and geophysics and law and whatever, you know, backyard construction, whatever your gig is, that has land relations. They are probably colonial because that's the dominant system. How does it work? Where can you put the brakes on that? Where is your jurisdictional space and wiggle room to do some of that work, even if it's very small and get out of my inbox, so how far would returning samples go toward the decolonialism of science? Uh, well, uh, that is definitely anti-colonial. And actually, for some folks, some of those samples are land and are relatives. And ha having those back is part of land back. And being able to govern govern your own land, including the little bits that have been taken from it or the large bits that have been taken from it is actually part of land back and putting them back under you. So that is actually the closest example of decolonization that might be there, even if it is a very baby scale. Um, yeah. And you also write that what are the, you ask, what are the implications of saying a research group is the first to have knowledge of something on indigenous land? So this is akin to the idea of uh, Columbus, for example, discovering oh, what yes. are called the Americas. On Fox News, I recently saw a defense of this kind of thinking. Their defense was that it was discovered by Europeans because Europeans proved their scientific superiority and technological superiority by sailing across the ocean to find the Americas. What is the impact on understanding? I know. And what is the that's impact? It's like, like a contortion so you can lick your own butthole and be like, I win. And you're like, well, if that's how you want to win. <laughs> exactly. Very, exactly. So what is the impact on understanding of indigenous peoples and traditions when they are seen as discovered? And it is assumed that they did not have any of the knowledge that science claims occupying settlers were the first to discover. Yeah. So this is this is a huge trend. This is one of the dominant science -y things, right? There's this huge thing in science and most and not just science social science humanities art that sort of stuff too where people are like i am the first to do this and like that is probably you're standing in a place where there have been people standing for a gazillion years since time immemorial it is highly unlikely that you are the first person to, to figure that thing out 
Um, and to, to make those sorts of statements is a form of erasing indigenous folks who were there before and their knowledge, and is also probably technically wrong, even just within science. <laughs> just do your lit review better. Did you do it in all the languages in the world? I don't think so. So um, it's, it's, it's very much, it's not even far off the metaphor of planting a flag, um, Columbus style. Yeah, it's rude, it's wrong, it makes you look like a jerk, it can be easily disproven. Uh, yeah, it's rude. You also uh, you wrote a book called Pollution is Colonialism. Do all forms mm. of colonialism need to be eradicated in order for us to effectively address climate change? Oh, that would be a really good start. I think that would be a solid start that would just take all the other steps out, actually, <laughs> if you could do that step. Um, yes. So I, I am mostly of the, the, the theory that anything that is a, a massive universal dominant system, uh, should probably be broken down into much smaller pieces that are not so universal and, and dominant for anything to really work. And that would include colonialism. I hope that was clear. Um, but yeah, ending colonialism and the entitlement to other people's land atmospheres, resources, including what lives in the ground, uh, colonialism would, or climate change would have to stop. It is dependent on extraction, 100%. So is local knowledge and colonial science, are they in contradiction with one another? No. Or are they in competition with one another? How would, no. you, how would you explain their relationship? So I don't think Western science is inherently colonial. Like, I don't think there's anything inherently colonial about, um, you know, have, making a research design and thinking about a hypothesis and testing it, right? Um, it is colonial when it starts to have certain power relations. And uh, local knowledge or bush knowledge or whatever you want to call it um, uses a lot of those same techniques. And sometimes they're at odds, but they can still live together. Um, so like, uh, you know, like trying to hunt buffalo scientifically using GPS and hunting buffalo with local knowledge based on where you know buffalo like to hang out because it makes them feel good, will take you to the same place and you can hunt with that guy. That's fine. Um, so yeah, they and there's this idea um, that Albert Marshall, who's a Mi'kmaq elder, uh, talks about two-eyed seeing, which is that, which I think would actually make me very, very dizzy. But out of one eyeball, you see with a Western paradigm of science and out of your other eyeball, you use Mi'kmaq local knowledge and, and they give you better sight because uh, you can just see more things, including the overlap. They also make you a little bit cross-eyed sometimes, but overall you just see better. I don't think he has the cross-eyed piece in his in his in his bit, but um, yeah. And so there's a lot of push. A lot of elders that I talk to are all about bringing these different knowledge systems together because we do have to solve some pretty big problems, and solving them together is not a bad idea. Uh, so uh, yeah, I don't think they're diametrically opposed. Uh, I just think that sometimes because dominant science is such a jerk uh, and has all this sort of power and, and unexamined cultural assumptions underneath of it, um, it's put in a position of, of uh, conflict, but it, that's not inherent to the knowledge system. And, and capitalism has a huge impact on uh, Western science. How would, West, how would the dominant science, how would that change if it were to under if it were to become anti-colonialized what would happen to dominant western science would would that be in competition with what the capitalist concerns are for science yeah i mean capital yeah so capitalism really needs science to help it drill deeper and shoot rockets higher or even not that high um shoot rockets at all 
Um, and you know, it's sort of, it's sort of still like the colonial science, like it needs, it needs more and more and more knowledge to survive in increasingly extreme environments. Uh, so for capitalism to reproduce, it still needs new knowledge in new ways and science can help it get there. All sorts of science. It, it's also doing it to local knowledge and patenting seeds and all this sort of stuff. So yeah, capitalism is hungry for various forms of knowledge, um, scientific and otherwise. Uh, and to, to make that, to stop the access of knowledge production to indigenous land and life would really upset a lot of uh, capital, right? Drilling, where to drill. If you look at a lot of the Arctic drilling stuff, like they need Inuit <laughs> uh, or they die uh, and they can't find things and, and write this sort of stuff. So it's, it does, yeah, that would stop things. One last question for you, Max. We've been speaking with Dr. Max Liboran, who wrote the Nature article, Decolonizing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion. You can follow Max uh, on uh, Twitter at Max Liboran, that's L-I-B-O-I-R-O-N, and learn more about Max at their website, maxliboran.com. One last question for you, Max, and as we do, before I even ask you this question, I've mm -hmm. really, really enjoyed this conversation. I can't believe that we missed out on your book, Pollution is Colonialism, that came Me out earlier this year. And I would love to have you back on to talk about that or any more of your writing, because I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. But one last question for you, and I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. Science has clearly been destructive to the planet. Geosciences in particular have been destructive to the environment. And when and then what is has been exploited and processed, again, contributes to environmental destruction in the form of climate change. To you, what explains the inability of science to recognize the damage it has done, to recognize its environmentally destructive behavior? That colonialism is the dominant system, and it remains unquestioned. And it's been so normalized that it's never yeah. even considered. Exactly. It just seems natural and like a good idea. Yeah, it's a great idea, isn't it? Mm. Yep. All right. Well, Max, I really appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for being on. This is one of my favorite articles that I've read this year. I really appreciate it. It's a topic I've been wanting to discuss for a long time. So thank you so much for being on our show. Cool. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Okay. Take care. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell if that conversation with Max on science as colonialism was in some way enlightening to the point of deprogramming you from a previous belief or understanding you may have had or made you feel more educated or realize that yes this really is hell show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. And this week, you are getting, as a Patreon subscriber, you would get a bonus Patreon podcast on Thursday, as well as our normal one on Friday. On Thursday, we'll be playing an interview from one month after the Columbine Massacre with Liz Palmer of Louisville, Kentucky-based Brat Magazine, which no longer exists, and how she was on to talk about the exaggerated fear of mass shootings, how the CDC had indeed shown that the number of mass shootings had been, mass school shootings had been dropping since the, er, since the early 1990s, and uh, none of the networks were reporting that. They were reporting that the opposite was true eventually 
essentially CBS Evening News was the only outlet that made a correction. Uh, so we'll be ha- we'll be sharing that conversation again from May 1999 with Liz Palmer of Brat Magazine shortly after the Columbine shooting on mass school shootings in the United States. We'll be sharing that on Thursdays. Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. This week's question mail is what was your highest low point of 2021? What was your highest low point of 2021? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell merchandise you want. You can click on you can check out all of our merchandise by clicking on this is hell.com. <laughs> Going to this is hell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show, tomorrow's show, when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth. During this week's moment, Jeff picks egg over chicken. Alex, do you have more answers to this week's question from hell? Which is, again, what was your highest low point of 2021? Yeah, Sam L says, realizing this is the last month of student loan relief and trying to enjoy it as such. I got a letter from student loan people, and they sent me that we do not know who owns any of your loans. However, if you'd like to contact us, we would be glad to go into a payment program. I'm like, if you don't know who owns loans, why am I giving you money? What was your highest low point? Of 2021, Warnell says, realizing I was incredibly average. <laughs> Ladio says, clock still ticking, still time for shoes to drop. <sighs> and Wojakar says, binge watching the prolific crop of streaming serial killer movies and miniseries in 2021. Finally, one last one uh, via email. Paul H says, having not seen a live band since February 4th, 2020, due to COVID, when I had a great time seeing Anna Meredith, highly recommended. I ventured out recently to see Marie Davidson. I chose to drive as it was pouring down. Big mistake as I got a parking ticket and a puncture, but worse, I arrived at the gig to be thrown out within five minutes due to a gas explosion in the basement kitchen. The fire brigade evacuated the building, so I walked home in the rain. I later found out the gig went ahead at the venue around the corner. (laughs) That is a high low point of 2021, or is that a low high point? I can't remember. And isn't 2021 just 2020 part two? I think that's all it is anyway. We'll have the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. Email us, message us via Facebook, tweet at us on Twitter with the guest suggestions and topic suggestions that you have for us. Or if you'd like to tell us what your favorite interviews or shows were this year on This Is Hell, or just have your thoughts on the show. We'll likely re- read whatever you have sent to us here on air. We got a guest suggestion from Jenny who writes, Hi, Chuck and Alex. I'd very mu- much like to send you my fun, serious new book, Stop Saving the Planet, an environmental manifesto, which W.W. Norton published earlier this year, as I love your own fun, serious, what the hell is up with that approach. In a nutshell, Stop Saving the Planet is short, fun, and fierce. It asks why the standard strategies buy a Tesla, carbon offsets aren't working at all, but also why so many climate-fearing Americans continue to believe they will, and also why real solutions need to ask, what is our economy for? Ultimately, Stop Saving the Planet is about how we need to talk about the environment and economy completely differently. She then cites Carolyn Finney calling the book Uh, saying it's filled with humor and insight, and historian Richard White says you cannot read a more important 100 pages. Okay. May I send you a copy, a real book to an actual address? Yes, we'll get in contact with you for all that. And, of course, if I'd be thrilled if you'd like to have me on for a conversation. Thank you so much for your work, and all the best. Signed, Jenny Price. Again, Jenny Price's book is called Stop Saving the Planet, an Environmental Manifesto. Jenny is a writer, artist, 
historian, and author of the 2000 book, Flight Maps, Adventures with Nature in Modern America. Who knows, you might be hearing Jenny here on This Is Hell in early 2022. We also heard from more listeners on their favorite episodes or interviews they heard on the show in 2021, which will be replayed over the winter break for the next couple of weeks. That's what we're going to be doing here on This Is Hell. We're taking off the next two weeks for the holidays. So we're going to be playing your 10 favorite and including our 10 favorite. We're all just kind of seconding and nominating as we go along. And we're going to figure out which were the favorites were. And we'll be announcing that uh, probably sometime this weekend or I don't know. So we got more favorites. And Mark writes, I'd pick David Graeber. Well, you can't pick David Graeber, Mark, because David Graeber died in 2020. Or Glenn Ford. Well, you can't pick Glenn Ford because unfortunately... He sadly died this year, and because of his health, he wasn't able to be on the show this year. I think the last time he was on it was in 2019. So sorry, Mark, you can't have we can't have either of those on, either of those guests on. But Mark writes. Also, I love the forget the Alamo interview with Chris Tomlinson. Sorry, I'm too drunk to do this properly. Mark, you did it properly, but sorry. Glenn and David weren't on the show last year. However, you are the third listener to suggest Chris Tomlinson and our interview with him on the book, Forget the Alamo. So that will definitely be one of the interviews that we will be playing. And so far, we have to thank Joel, Wally, and Mark for the suggestion. And now our Jeff Dorchin has made it a fourth nomination of the Tomlinson interview on the Alamo. We also heard from Coffee who seconded Joel's suggestion of James K. Galbraith on MMT, Modern Management Theory, or Monetary Theory. Uh, Meanwhile, David and Braden both nominated our conversation with Terrence Ray, who wrote the Baffler piece, United in Rage, Half-Truths and Myths Propelled Kentucky's War on Opioids. They also both suggested our conversation with Ben Ehrenreich in the New Republic article on growth, carbon, and death. Meanwhile, Braden agrees with Jeffy that we should play our discussion on poppers and a queer utopia with Adam Smith. Jeff also seconds Joel's nomination of Nick Buxton on border walls and the climate crisis. And Jeff also seconds David's request that we consider replaying our interview with Cerise Castle, author of the investigative series a Tradition of Violence, The History of De- Deputy Gangs in the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. We still have not finalized the shows. We will be playing yet, but we will shortly. And we want to hear from you about what we should be playing over the next couple of weeks here at thisishell.com. Again, please send us your favorite interviews or episodes to chuck at thisishell.com. And if we play your suggestion, we'll personally thank you for your suggestion. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Thursday, Wednesday's live one-hour show at 2020, of 2021 at 10 a.m. Chicago time right here at This Is Hell Talk. Uh, yep. So tomorrow, the last of 2021, David Dayan will be on to talk about his American Prospect piece, The Great Escape, Why Workers Are Quitting Their Jobs After the Trauma of the Pandemic. I swear the only reason we've talked to anybody from American Prospect in the last five years is because David Dayan was having his articles published there. Alex, do you know, uh, so it's going to be you know mid to high 60s tomorrow. Uh, because it is going to be really that warm outside. I can't believe it. It's surprised and frightened. I just might be uh, coming over here and hanging out at Carrie's Lounge 2251 West Devon in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood to celebrate our final show of 2021. Will you be dropping by tomorrow night? Do you have any plans? Yeah, or I'm going to cook something. I don't know what yet. All right. 
but you're going to definitely make something. Yeah, yeah, I'll be here all with food. Sweet. Uh, thanks to today's guest, Dr. Max Libwaran, who wrote the Nature article, Decolonizing Geoscience Requires More Than Equity and Inclusion. It is a must-read, and you should go find all of Max's writing because it's something that, look, I'm white. A lot of you might be white. You should be finding out more about Dr. Max Libwaran. Learn more about Max at their website, maxlibwaran.com, L-I-B-O-I-R-O-N. Follow Max on Twitter, at Max Libwaran. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Cap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alexander Jerry. Thanks to Alex. Thanks to Max. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>